Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. For each of us, there are those who have lifted us up, those who have helped us become who we are personally and professionally. When I walked into room 200 of San Francisco's City Hall and met Willie L. Brown Jr. for the first time, he was the mayor and I was a 30-year-old radical environmentalist. It was 2001 and he hired me on the spot to lead San Francisco's environment department. He took a big risk on me, but more than that, as a boss, he backed up every decision I ever made, both good and bad, and I'm glad to say we've been friends ever since. In California and beyond, Willie Brown is a legend. He is and will likely remain California's longest-serving speaker and was San Francisco's first African-American mayor. Willie Brown was born in the East Texas town of Mineola, where mob violence often prevented African-Americans from voting. Willie's first job was as a shoeshine boy in a whites-only barbershop. He later worked as a janitor, a field hand, and as a fry cook. And in 1951, at the age of 17, he went to San Francisco to live with his uncle. And in order to pay for college at San Francisco State and then Hastings Law School, Willie worked as a doorman and as a janitor. Willie Brown was first elected to the California State Assembly in 1964, In 1975, Brown authored and lobbied for the successful passage of the consenting adult sex bill that legalized homosexuality in California. And in 1980, Willie Brown became California's assembly speaker and according to the New York Times, became one of the country's most powerful state legislators. In addition to all Willie Brown's accomplishments, he's also got an impish sense of humor, an amazing sense of style, a love of great food, and watches no less than four movies a week. Maybe that's because in the 90s, Willie played himself in The Godfather Part 3, had roles in George of the Jungle, The Princess Diaries, one of my favorite movies, and in The Hulk, where Willie played the mayor of San Francisco, which, of course, he actually was in the real world from 1996 to 2004. Today, among the literally hundreds of activities that Willie Brown engages in each week, He helps oversee the Willie L. Brown Jr. Institute on Politics and Public Service at San Francisco State, which trains students for careers in municipal, county, and regional governments. I meet up with Willie Brown at Café de la Presse on Grant Street in San Francisco to record this Christmas special. This is the Willie Brown Christmas special. So, Willie... (laughs) Ah, Christmas special for me? (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Like, the original Scrooge. <laughs> no, you're the opposite. The opposite of Scrooge. You're the most generous person I've ever met. I remember, like, literally the first uh, first day I started working for you, you gave everyone a bottle of Dom Perignon champagne for Christmas. So you are the most generous Christmas giver ever. I love um, having fun with people, and I want everybody to be happy. And so, therefore, if I can share and bring that joy and that smile, I do. You really do. First thing I remember about, you said, Jared, two things. One, come and join me for for these meetings. And at the end of the meeting, you said, what do you notice? And And I said, actually, you didn't say anything in the entire meeting. And you're like... 
That's the nature of who Willie Brown really is. I developed the ability a long time ago to listen. And I think, Jared, that came from my mother. She told me in Texas years ago, before she let me fly on my own, that you're really better off if you hear everybody out, you learn a hell of a lot more than you trying to share your limited wisdom with them. And that has parlayed into a successful career. Not only did you listen to people who came into the room, but you did something that I don't think any other mayor or other politicians do. On Saturdays, like the first Saturday of the month, you'd open up City Hall and you'd sit down with people and listen to them. And literally, from crackpots to geniuses, and then you'd send them my way. <laughs> I sent them your way, but it was not exclusive. I'd send them to other people as well. I wouldn't overload you, uh, but clearly... People who live in a city where they have elected representation, that elected representation needs to afford them an ear. Whether you can do anything about their problem or not, having somebody to at least listen to it is almost as important as an answer. We had a lot of fun. One of the funniest things we ever did was um, someone had this segue and uh, they brought it to City Hall, and I just happened to appear in the moment that you, they had two of them, and you and I went all the way around on the marble floors of these segways. And I remember that very well, because I had no idea there were no brakes, <laughs> and that you really had to figure out how to use your body weight to stop that segway. And John Doerr, who apparently had been the Silicon Valley financer of that instrument, uh, that obviously that uh, environmentally sensitive instrument uh, really wanted to highlight it and he had not been able to get any way to highlight it. You and I, riding around City Hall, highlighted segways more than anybody in the airport who uses it currently as a means of transportation for security purposes. I kind of get to see how different Sacramento is compared to the Sacramento that you described to me. I mean, the Sacramento you described to me was like very orderly, what's happened, and, and kind of reflect back on the Sacramento that, that you helped oversee. Well, the voters um, in 1990 passed something called term limits, and it literally meant that after six years, every member of the lower house of the legislature would be out for life. Every senator, after two terms, eight years, would be out for life. So people no longer considered being in the halls of the legislature as a legitimate career option, where they would first learn, and then they could execute, and they could really do something about addressing the needs of the people of, of this state. That has plagued the legislature till this day. Not until about 2012, that there get to be any light as to why you ought to last more than six years. When they went to a 12-year max by all the members of either house, and that too has not yet been a real uh, blessing for what we need in terms of getting back to the stable relationship that I enjoyed in my experience for more than 30 years of being a state elected official, the state of California no longer has access to that kind of expertise. 
It may eventually develop that kind of expertise. But in the meantime, there is a major handicap because you do not have skilled management theoreticians who have real beliefs other than that pushed by their party label or by whomever may have sent them there. I suspect that Washington suffers from the same illness that the state of California suffers from, and that is that people do not fill the need to really be career-oriented in every aspect of what they're doing. For public policy purposes, that means your utterances and your advocacy may or may not stand the test of time and the measurement by fellow legislators. You no longer have that before. Now it's just quick, dry, intolerant differences of opinion. And that's hurting this democracy. One of the things that I know you for is you're incredibly responsive. If someone phones you, you phone back. If someone sends you a note, you send a note. Like That also seems completely out of vogue. How do we bring back some of that, some of that humanity to politics? It'll come with new people being elected to public office who are not burdened with answering only to a very limited constituency and who can actually, based on their training and their beliefs, manage to get themselves elected and re-elected on the basis of their performance rather than their entertaining. So when, when young people come to you, Willie, and say, I'm, I'm thinking of entering politics, like how do you help them through that discussion? I cite them in my own career. I immigrated here from Texas after high school, went to college and law school, got credentialed, and I tell them right out of the box, you cannot be helpful unless you maximize your training opportunities and your credentialing. And then after you've done that, you'll be in a position where you can demonstrate service that might cause you to be rewarded by people asking you to run. It's really better off if somebody some movement, some collection of people says, I think you would make a good representative. This self-starting representation being the hallmark of what most office holders have today is ultimately counterproductive because usually they stand for nothing, they believe in nothing except re-election. The San Francisco that you knew when you first came here from Indiana, Texas is very different than the one now. Like Tell us about like those changes. Are they positive? Are they negative? Like, How do you view the San Francisco of today? San Francisco today is dramatically different from what it was when I arrived. When I arrived, it didn't take me more than a month to recognize that there was a great opportunity for hard work, service, and believability to be rewarded. That's no longer the mentality of San Francisco. San Francisco is as plagued uh, with ineptitude among people, particularly elected type, as is the case with Washington, D.C., or as with the case with the White House. And that ultimately means it's less of an attractive, exciting, inspirational city than it was when I arrived. It's hard to believe, like I first met you, 
2001, which is coming up on 19 years, it feels like the blink of an eye. Um, like what, what are the things that you're thinking about as, as we enter 2020 that give you hope and inspiration when it comes to San Francisco? Well, I frankly hope that my own children will start to think positively about participating in the political process and pursuing public office. I would hope that the interns that I am shepherding and marshalling at San Francisco State working in city government will translate into people who will contribute one way or another to the operation of the city. And I'm hopeful that the radical changes that need to be made in how we govern ourselves in the city. When I arrived here, almost everybody was a citywide elected official, not a local little district elected official, because the city is so small in and of itself. If that process can be changed, the results will be, I think, again, optimism about this city. One of the positive things for me about San Francisco as I, as I spend more time in Sacramento is the food is still incredible. Like, tell us about your love of food. What you find out in this city, almost right out of the box, is that you really don't need a kitchen in your house. That there are kitchens on every block, in every neighborhood, and the quality of what's there, and the diversity of what's there, plus the cultural influence of what's there, makes dining an experience to be explored and employed and enjoyed as much as traveling to the seven continents of the world. That's how important it is in San Francisco to have an appreciation for good quality taste in food and drink. And believe me, coming out of Texas where there was very few options for what you had in terms of food, and to get here to San Francisco and one day eat Mexican food, the next day uh, eat Korean food, the next day uh, eat uh, food from that prepared in the south where I came from, is amazing unto itself. But to find it distributed all over the city where every neighborhood has its own indigenous group of restaurants and they're usually populated by people who are not trying to conquer the world in, the, in terms of food, but they're simply working people, producing a quality product that allows their family to have a place to live in and, and, and to survive, while at the same time serving their neighbors and being paid for it. It's fabulous. So how do you work out which restaurant to go to at any time? Usually it's whomever I happen to be with. If somebody has visited me from Sacramento or from Los Angeles or from Texas, or I will inquire as to what their preferences might be. And most people, interestingly enough, if they're not from San Francisco, want to explore something unique about the city. And always you start with food. The next thing after food, you're a voracious watcher of movies. Like, every time I talk to you, like... How many movies do you watch a week? It's like, it's incredible. <laughs> I am short on my movie uh, attendance of late because there's so many other things that I am mandated to do. But if I don't see four movies a week, 
I am not satisfied at all. And interestingly enough, I see whatever is on the screen. I don't really plan to go to a particular movie. I don't say, hey, I'm going to go see Star Wars. Well, no, that's not true. I'm going to go see whatever is timed at this moment that I have a two-hour opening to see. I don't care what it is. That's how much I love movies. One of the hallmarks of Willie Brown, which is on display, even though we're in a crepery, um, is your sartorial uh, excellence. Like, why is it still important in t coming into 2020 to dress perfectly? Well, I have always, always loved clothing. As a matter of fact, Jared, when I was, lived in Texas, uh, you know, people now say they shop online. Well, you know, there was something called a catalog, and it was a Sears Roebuck catalog. And sometimes I had order from Sears Roebuck, and by the time they shipped to me, I had already outgrown what I ordered. <laughs> and so, but it was a preference for clothing that I think came from a combination of my uncle and my mother. The two of them at all times would be impeccable. They could come to breakfast and be well-dressed. And as a result of that, it became a part of who I am. And I discovered that it really is a, a cause for people to pay attention to you. When you've paid attention to yourself in every way, when you've made it clearly comfortable for them not to have to turn away if there's something about you that's disheveled, uh, that is very helpful. So you're definitely as strong and vital as a man half your age. What's your, what's your secret? I mean, you've told us about food and being well-dressed, but like, how do you do it, Willie? Well, you really do need to physically take care of yourself under all circumstances. You really need to be mindful of the health requirements. You need to be mindful of the exercise requirements. You need to be the mindful of the fresh air you need to breathe. You need to avoid things that are detrimental to your physical system, whether it be smoking or excessive alcohol or any of those kinds of things. Stay away from all those things. There's no reason to do it, and you don't really enjoy it anyway. All those things are true, but you must also work out. <laughs> well, I love, frankly, I love going to the gym. I have lived in buildings in which they have such a facility, and I try to do at least an hour a day. One of the things that you notice when I spend time around you is you kind of have this very grounded sense of calmness. However many people are losing their head around you, you always keep your calm. <laughs> like, what's the secret? I am concerned when uh, there is really trauma in the lives of other people, but I know to evidence any or inability to be of assistance is counterproductive. So I want at all times to be in where that I can actually aid people rather than have people trying to aid me. You've been an amazing mentor to, to countless people. How do you see mentorship as, as part of your legacy? Mentorship is a mandatory. Believe me, when people talk about uh, what do you want to be your legacy? Do you want a building named after you? Do you want a bridge named after you? Do you want a program named after me? No. I want a collection of replacements who have, in one manner or another, 
learned from me, adopted much of what I do, and then expand with their own ability beyond where I let them go. I mean, that, that's an amazing statement of legacy. So San Francisco plays a, a kind of oversized role, both in terms of California politics, but also national politics. The state is the fifth largest economy in the world. So even when California is having this big role in, in the nation, why aren't California issues taking center stage? Simply because people do not understand nor appreciate California. Even the newscasters were unable to penetrate in a way that would allow California to become the issue. California's performance in terms of how you manage food production, how you manage water distribution, how you address the land issue, how you address the issue of diversity, how you address the issue of education, and above all else, how you address the issue of economics represents a prototype that many other places in the nation could use. Yet, the California experience and the California concepts are sometimes demeaned or sometimes laughed at, and that's unfortunate. So when you were mayor, um, and I, I remember like we, you created this thing called the Earth Day Breakfast with Francesca Vitor, yeah. and uh, it's probably like the 900th <laughs> Earth Day Breakfast by now, but in my last Earth Day Breakfast, we did this thing called How Green is Brown, and uh, it was amazing. I mean, you set this goal of zero waste for trash, uh, you put in place the integrated pest management for the city's parks. You acquired new buildings be green. Um, we had the first hydrogen fuel cell car, a Honda, which is like a $3 million car. You and I nearly crashed. Like, you did all these green things. Like, how, how do you view the environment now? And at the time, why did you not want to take more credit for all the green stuff you were doing? Well, it's important, frankly, that credit not be in the consideration of people engaging in innovative and creative ways. Many people are motivated if they think they're going to be acknowledged as having done it. And so if you can get them to in fact engage and become involved, let them take the credit, frankly. In the halls of the legislature, my goal in life was to have every member have his name on a bill before mine. And that was important. And it's the same way if we're going to deal with the issues involving the environment. We've really got to get people motivated, or frankly, to make it a priority with them for clean air, for uh, good quality water. Somehow convince people, if we can, uh, that uh, the whole business of what happens with energy must be done in such a way uh, that it improves the environment rather than uh, adversely affects the environment. The business involving uh, climate is clearly something we need to try to figure out how to get people involved in, the way in which to motivate them to so participate. My goal was always that. I did not, whether it was a uh, ban on assault weapons that we had Mike Roos do, or whether it was or divestment in apartheid that we had Maxine Waters do that freed Nelson Mandela, uh, whether it was 
uh, the business of uh, emissions uh, that we had Byron Shear uh, become the responsible person for, whether it was the business of managing water long before anybody tried to manage water, Charlie Warren uh, tried to do exactly that, and we helped orchestrate that. The whole business of what happens uh, with reference to uh, the health standards uh, that uh, emulate from environmental quality and environmental control, uh, we had a number of people uh, trying to put those programs together, particularly, interestingly enough, legislators from places like Marin County or legislators like the ones from Santa Barbara area. We at the state level now have a governor who experienced that kind of development in San Francisco as part of all the things that I ever did. And with him at the helm now, you've got a better shot in his emphasis on the Central Valley in the way that he has been playing it and his becoming like the governor from the Central Valley, although he's from San Francisco, will cause the farmers to want to follow his leadership on land planning and land use. All those things are part of what we call climate control and the environment. One thing that you also didn't take credit for, but you did, which actually has led to the development of the southeast part of the city, is you helped close down Hunter's Point Power Plant. Uh, you, you took on PG&E early and hard. Um, but this issue of environmental justice, namely if you look at pollution across the United States, across California, you can find where the pollution is going to be by where low-income communities of color are. The folk involved, if they are isolated, there will not be enough strength politically to achieve anything. So you really need to try to engage and involve and have people not become only addicted to participating in their short and narrow goal, uh, period. And that is how I tried to manage and how I tried to operate. So as you think about Willie Brown's Christmas special, which this is, like, what are, what are you hoping for in the next few days? Like, Christmas is often a time of anxiety. How do you manage this stressful time of year, Mayor? I must tell you that it's kind of amazing because... Um, the recycling of gifts have become the cornerstone of almost everybody uh, these days. And so what I've decided to do is I'll give a gift, but I take it directly to you and make you open it in front of me and get your reaction because I hold on to the return receipt. <laughs> and last night that actually happened. I delivered a gift uh, to my lady friend, uh, Sonia, and she and I said, you know, the nature of what I'm giving you is usable immediately because it's so cold in San Francisco and you don't really have a quality coat. She opened it and she says, you know, you, you're missing. I said, what do you mean you're missing? Either you can't see or you don't remember. I don't like blue. I had bought her a blue coat. <laughs> Corrected almost immediately, immediately back to the place where I got it, got the same coat, but in a different color. It was perfect. I anticipate somehow having that become the cornerstone of the Willie Brown Christmas. I like it, re-gifting. It's a like reuse, re-gift, yeah, recycle. Um, final question is, I, I grew up with two Jewish parents who celebrated Christmas and I kind of feel chipped that I don't get to go to Chinese food on Christmas day, which is like a Jewish tradition. I was like, I want to do that. Have you ever done that? Well, no. 
I have not. Because on Christmas Day, among black people, if you don't eat black food, you're in trouble. So what's the menu going to be for your Christmas? Turkey, stuff with cornbread dressing, sweet potatoes, and in this case, real yams, and obviously a sweet potato pie or a pie that represents something different from what we normally call a pumpkin. For your birth, that's what you like for your birthday too, I remember. Well, yes, that's part of my birthday because I lie and celebrate my birthday more often than most people have birthdays. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good trick. I like that. It works very well. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Um, I love catching up with you, and I hope you have a fabulous 2020. All right, Jared. Thank you very much. A huge thank you to my mentor, friend, and boss, Willie Brown. I continue to learn so much from this living legend, from the importance of listening, of fighting for what you believe in, of the long game. But mostly what I walk away from each meeting with Willie L. Brown Jr. is a sense of vitality, of vigor, and for a love of life. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, I wish you an amazing 2020.